Good morning, everyone. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a descendant of the founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, and you have tuned in to the 15th of July, 2022 episode of Greenwich, a town for all seasons. Isn't that just wonderful? I just love that music. Well, anyway, my friends, I again want to welcome you to the 15th of July 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. It's hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, the, or I should say, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. And as always, I am very, very pleased, glad, and thrilled that you could join us for today's show. Now, founded on July 18, 1640, the town of Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. This weekly podcast show is dedicated to exploring that history and doing so with a great degree of inquiry and fun. Now, whether your your roots go back nearly 400 years as mine do, or even 400 seconds, oh, oh sorry, um, <laughs> or somewhere in between, there goes the train. Whether you are here to stay or just passing through, we welcome you with open arms. You're a part of our history. And so with that, we congratulate you. Now, the Greenwich and Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, also the Long Island Sound Institute, which is a project of Site Design Associates, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. July 18, 1640 is Greenwich, Connecticut's Founders Day. Now, while July 18th is not a legal holiday here in town, it is a day that has been and still is loved and honored by so many of us who call this place home. The town in the past has held parades and featuring floats and marching bands and so on and so forth. Retailers have been known to dress in period costume. And indeed, let us not forget the bargains of galore during the annual Greenwich Sidewalk Sales Days. <laughs> Coming up real soon. In its broadest sense, we on Founders Day pause out of respect for original settlers who abandoned their native lands in Europe and devoted their lives to the founding and continuance of values and principles that would plant the seeds of Greenwich, Connecticut's origins and set in motion, I believe, a path for this community to thrive and become what it is today. Um, I'm going to be sharing with you uh, throughout the show a sampling of how the people of Greenwich celebrated and observed Founders Day throughout um, its history. Now, on today is, of course, Friday the 15th of July. So let me tell you what we've got in store for you. Ready? Imagine for yourself being among the guests at the coastal great estate called Walhall in the Riverside section of Greenwich. It was here that John Jacob Langloth, a mining millionaire, indulged his love of music and the arts with concerts that attracted 1,500 guests and visitors at a time. Well, Pretty good, if you ask me. Imagine, too, being with his wife, Valeria Knapp, who's, who once had 25,000 daffodils strewn across the grounds of the estate and whose devotion to the pleasures of gardening was legendary. Picture this, too, and this comes from the Great Estates books. Limestone was quarried for the house at Bedford, Indiana, floated down the White Wabash Ohio and Mississippi rivers to New Orleans, and from there to be shipped through the Gulf of Mexico, north on the Atlantic Ocean, to Long Island Sound, and finally unloaded at the Langloth's concrete yacht landing in Riverside. 
Now, if you ask me, that's quite an accomplishment. Now, when Walhall was completed just before the beginning of World War I, it really was an imposing three-story, 26-room Italian Renaissance man mansion built of smooth cut limestone concrete and steel on Roman classical lines. So I want you to join me uh, on today's show because I'm going to be sharing with you more about Walhall as found in the Junior League of Greenwich's book on this legendary era in Greenwich, Connecticut's history. Moving along, of course, um, one of Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard's talents was Storyteller, and he published under the pen name Ezekiel Lemondale and about what he called Cracker Barrel Stuff, quote-unquote. Our featured column from Judge Hubbard's dates from September 1931, in which he discusses labor matters, names of Greenwich localities, and more. Now, as we are pausing to observe Greenwich's Founders' Day, we're going to go through the pages of Greenwich Before 2000, an updated revised edition of Before and After 1776, the comprehensive chronology of the town of Greenwich. I'll be sharing with you from that book what happened from years 1670 to 1676. So tune in and find out. Now, some of you... This is in very, very recent history. Now, some of you may remember back in mid-April of this year, a story in Greenwich Free Press about the Fuhrer in Old Greenwich centered on an exterior display, a floral display, as I recall, outside the offices of Abigail Fox Designs, and that a violation was issued. It really caused quite a storm. So, <laughs> out of fun. So, I want you to imagine for yourself what happened and the attention that was entailed in December 1922, so not quite 100 years ago, when six large buck deer were hung in front of Finch's Pharmacy on Greenwich Avenue, again, in December of 1922, the result of a local hunt club that had just returned from Canada. Well, my... <laughs> times have changed. You're going to love that story. Trust me on this. On crimes and misdemeanors, um, uh, a minor uh, in Greenwich by the name of John H. Tyson of Riverside was arrested. He was fined $50 in costs for speeding down Greenwich Avenue at the rate of 30 to 40 miles per hour. Um, in July 1990, or 1898, sorry, burglars were hard at work on Field Point Road, breaking into several quote-unquote handsome houses and stealing mostly silver items. Believe it or not, the papers actually itemized the things that were stolen. You'll hear about that. Now, um, I have more to share with you about the Discover Greenwich Creating a Sense of Place program. This is the new program from the Greenwich Historical Society celebrating its 90th year anniversary. Friends, I'm going to have news of exhibits, activities, and public events uh, for you and all members of the public to attend. You've come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. So I want you to stay right there. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Site Design Associates is an award-winning landscape architecture studio located in historic Greenwich, Connecticut, and founded in 1979 by its principal, Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect. Committed to a unique multidisciplinary approach to professional landscape design and development, Site Design Associates' ambition is to foster a sense of excellence that is second to none from analysis to construction and maintenance with 35 years of experience. Coupled with a sense of place, purpose, and history. Now, Peter F. Alexander is a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects. He's a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design and a member of the American Planning Association. My friends, Peter F. Alexander and Site Design Associates is the title sponsor of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, and we are very grateful for the support that we receive. You can learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. You can call Peter F. Alexander at 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Or you can email him at peterA at sitedesignassociates.com. A special project of Site Design Associates and its principal landscape architect, Peter F. Alexander, 
The Greenwich, Connecticut-based Long Island Sound Institute consists of a community of professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned individuals progressively congruently working towards safeguarding Long Island Sound through research, historical perspective, and restoring ecological balance through management, policy, and education. The Long Island Sound Institute's aspiration is to promote modern planning and the implementation of the most up-to-date technologies available to conserve Long Island Sound for future generations. Long Island Sound Institute's studio is at 2 Greenwich Office Park West. To contact the Institute, email LISIHI2023 at gmail.com. That's L-I-S-I-H-I-2023 at gmail.com or call area code 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, Knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. There are many ways to serve our country. A select number of individuals are nominated to serve as U.S. ambassadors in countries around the world. Their diplomatic assignments are vital to the U.S. maintaining peaceful and working relationships with global governments. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is based in Greenwich, Connecticut. AMUSA is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual ambassador museum. This facility will be a tribute not just to the ambassadors, but also their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. Its goal is to correct a stereotypical idea that large donors are the people who are selected as ambassadors of the United States and the notion that some in the State Department make a career out of being an ambassador. To learn more about the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, go online to amusa.info. That's that's amusa.info. Call 203-347-4604. Or you can also write to P.O. Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, my friends, it's another beautiful July morning here in Greenwich, Connecticut, and I am blessed beyond words, I think, because I have been given a beautiful... Let me, I have to take a sip here. Hang on a second. Mm. Oh, that is beautiful. This is Coffee from Coffee for Good, located in the Solomon Mead House on the grounds of the Second Congregational Church here in Greenwich, Connecticut. Uh, uh, 48 Maple Avenue is the address. Uh, and I, I invite you to come. This is really actually a very nice setting to talk to you about one of... Apparently, a lot of you really enjoy this segment that we have about the greatest states of, um, of Greenwich. And... In order to make this possible, I have to give uh, my sincerest gratitude to a very, very extraordinary group of uh, Greenwich uh, women, uh, and that would be, of course, the people the, uh, at, the, um, at the Junior League of Greenwich. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, the reason why is because uh, since 1959, they have played an incredible role in the history of, um, of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. They have uh, created and done so much um, in terms of projects and services and things, things that, uh, I hate to say it, but we probably take for, uh, for granted and, um, and, and shouldn't. Um, and so we're very grateful for um, our good friends over at the Junior League of Greenwich for all that they have done and for all that they will continue to, uh, to do in the, um, in the years ahead. One of the things that they did that I thought was extraordinary and why I'm so delighted to be able to share this uh, part of our history with you, is that they published an extraordinary book that you can borrow from the Greenwich Library System, and it's called The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930. to 1930. 
Now, before he died, uh, the late town historian William E. Finch Jr., a very good friend of mine um, in, in the day, he referred to this period of our history as the flowering of Greenwich. It was the age when the word Greenwich became synonymous with the word millionaire. Now, um, as I said, The Greatest States, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880 to 1930 book is available for borrowing from the Greenwich Library System. I suppose if you were to go online, um, you could probably find uh, it through your favorite online book vendor. Today, I'm going to um, share with you um, the uh, text of uh, the, um, the chapter uh, of a great estate called Walhall, W-A-L-H-A-L. Its principal owners were John Jacob and Valerie Knapp Langcloth. Langloth, and um, the architect was John Duncan, and the construction date was 1912 to 1914. There are some really incredible uh, illustrations, photographic illustrations in um, in this particular chapter, and uh, so therefore I would urge you to uh, to go out and to uh, to find this book uh, uh, wherever it is that you can find it. So I want you to sit back, join me with the coffee. Let me take one more sip before I get started. And I'm going to tell you about this truly extraordinary um, uh, great estate while the bells of the Second Congregational Church (laughs) ring in the background. Hang on a second. Ah, that's beautiful. All right. You know me. I have to have my coffee. All right. Here we go. One of the most beautiful of the shore properties along Long Island Sound is located in Riverside, and was first admired by its best-known owner, John Jacob Langoth. From the water, an avid yachtsman, he knew most of the waters and frontage within easy reach of his New York business offices. Having accumulated great wealth in the metals industry, he set about the task of acquiring this choice place for himself and his wife. He was of German birth, but became an American citizen, though many years her senior, in 1903, married Valeria Knapp. He had risen rapidly in the metals company, and I hope I pronounce this properly, my friends. It's Metallgenschaft. <laughs> I, I, I have to ask for your mercy. My, my German is not very good. The company is uh, of uh, Frankfurt, Germany. In New York, he organized and helped to found the American Metal Company, becoming the world-recognized authority in his field. He loved nature and the out-of-doors, and he wanted a country place. When John Langloth was able to buy the 57-acre property from Edwin W. Bullinger in 1908, it was no longer a working farm and was considerably run down. Valeria Langloth described the existing house as a mid-Victorian monstrosity, quote-unquote. However, there were beautiful green lawns, magnificent groves of trees, rocky slopes, and above all, two miles of curving shoreline with its breathtaking view of the water, Long Island, and in later years, even the New York City skyline. In earlier times, the area had been known as a gathering place for many tribes of Indians. In fact, Indian pictures, which indicated treaty marks, were found by the Langloths on the rocks of a glen near the center of the estate. Langloth made costly changes to the uh, in the original house. Remodeling and refurnishing the dining room alone cost more than $25,000. However, neither he nor his wife was ever satisfied with the results. Two fires on the property precipitated their decision to demolish the entire structure and to build a new house, uh, which would not only fireproof, but more to their taste. John Duncan, the New York architect, who was also responsible for the building of Grant's tomb on Riverside Drive, was engaged to draw plans for the new mansion. It was to be called Walhall, for Langloth was a devotee of Waglerian music, and among his favorite passages were those relating to Valhalla, the legendary dwelling place of heroes slain in battle. Construction of the new mansion was begun in 1912 and finished in 1914. Limestone was quarried at Bedford, Indiana, and floated down the White, Wabash, Ohio, and Mississippi rivers to New Orleans from there to be shipped through the Gulf of Mexico, north on the Atlantic Ocean to Long Island Sound, and finally unloaded at the Langloss Concrete 
yacht landing in Riverside. Meanwhile, Duncan first constructed an outbuilding intended eventually for the superintendent. The Langloths lived there and with their New York servants while the main house was under construction. This building is owned as a private residence today. Another four-story building was built nearby with root cellar and fruit storage rooms underneath the stables, provided for the Kentucky Thoroughbred Riding Horses and Pecheram Workhorses. The stable included garages used eventually for a station wagon and three other automobiles. The Langloth's cars were kept in steam-heated rooms. The third level was originally planned for miscellaneous storage, but later a dance floor of hard oak was installed and was called the Barn Ballroom. Many gay evenings were spent there over the years that followed. An orchestra platform was installed, as was a piano, and later cabaret tables and chairs were added, as well as projection equipment for showing motion pictures. When Wall Hall was completed just before World War I began, it was an opposing three-storied Italian Renaissance mansion built of smooth-cut limestone, concrete, and steel on Roman classical lines. Its 26 rooms had floors of teakwood, hardwood, and marble. Valeria Langloth wrote in her book Utopia in the Hills, published in 1948, that Duncan had encouraged her in her desire to have nothing but the best. Her husband had the means to provide it, and the couple took great pride in their accomplishment. When they went to Europe in 1913, they purchased some of the furnishings, rugs, paintings, tapestries, and articles of furniture primarily of the Louis XVI period, many of them museum pieces. In her book, Valeria Linecloth noted that, quote, the furnishing of Walhall was a delight to John as it was to me, as one carefully selected piece of furniture after another was set in its proper place, the vastness of the house began to shrink. It became a truly livable and lovable home, unquote. Unfortunately, John Langloth was never to move into his beloved Walhall. On the night of August 14, 1914, before the house was completely furnished, he died of a heart attack. A shipment of 48 carved limestone jars and vases, carefully chosen to embellish the terraces and the grounds, arrived the day after his death. Valeria Langloth lived on there for 19 years with her cousin Elizabeth Knapp for a companion. She filled her active life with social engagements and extensive travel. She raised hundreds of orchids in her own greenhouse. And, most importantly, she created Valeria Home in northern Westchester. She had long dreamed of a building of building a beautiful recreation and convalescence center for, quote, persons of education and refinement, unquote, unquote, who could not afford vacations. In his will, her husband had directed her to establish such a place, and in 1924 she opened the doors of a magnificent Tudor villa set on a thousand acres of rolling wooded hills near Peekskill. Nineteen years after her first husband's death, Valeria Langloth married Frederick T. Bonham, an executive of the New York Times, in a double wedding ceremony. At the same time, her cousin Elizabeth Knapp married Bonham's Tennessee friend, Walter H. Mann. The Bonhams lived in and enjoyed Walhall for almost twenty years thereafter. From a practical point of view, the estate supplied those who lived there with most of the food they needed. There was a stone building for pigs and Guernsey cattle with a creamery at one end. There were gardeners' cottages, barns and storerooms, filled in winter with farm produce that not only fed the household and staff, but also provided ample stocks to share with others. Chickens, ducks, geese, and guinea fowl were raised by the hundreds, and highly bred pheasants as well. A large orchard of apple, peach, pear, and cherry trees produced fruit to spare. The grounds of Walhall were spectacular. The house dominated a knoll that slopes abruptly to the water of an inlet on the west and more gently to the south, where the view ranges across a low wooded peninsula and the open sound. 
On the east, the mansion opened onto a terrace from which passing a large marble pool where tropical lilies blazed, one reached the formal gardens. The bronze original of a lovely statue called The Vine by Harriet W. Fishmouth stood in the center of an avenue of sheared retinous polis, oh dear, (laughs) and surmounting a fountain beyond. Formal rows and peony gardens were laid out before an entrance portico of limestone composed of white columns and vine-covered trellises. The gardens were bound by low gray stone walls and filled with the sounds of playing fountains together with the light of reflecting pools. To the south of the house, landscape architect Noel Chamberlain had designed a green garden or continuous permanent border to enclose a sunken outdoor theater. There, on the close-chipped green grass, 1,500 guests could be seated to watch musical programs, which took place on the stone-paved stage, elevated at one side. At one performance of Eolanth, the moon was so bright that no electric lighting was necessary. The center area was surrounded by a rock wall beyond which broad-leaved evergreens, pink and white dogwoods, and a variety of large native trees provided a picturesque background. Throughout this woodland, more than 25,000 daffodils were strewn. The broad acres of the estate were meticulously kept. Wide expanses of lawn studded with dogwood trees were equipped with underground sprinkler systems, and specimen boxwoods and other rare evergreens also flourished. The forest of trees arranged in a series of alleys, a replica of Versailles, was of particular interest. Each of the selected specimens, among them elm, pin oak, linden, maple, and beech, had to be planted in a blasted excavation, owing to the presence of solid rock close to the surface. Naturalized narcissus, scattered about on the forest floor, bloomed by the hundreds. In 1936, the Bonhams received a gold medal, quote, for having the most beautiful and best-kept estate near New York, quote-unquote, according to the New York Times. A woman endowed with wealth, beauty, and a magnetic personality, a skilled pianist, organist, and charter member of the Metropolitan Opera Association. Valeria Linecloth Bonham entertained thousands of guests in the main house, in the barn ballroom, and throughout the estate with its terraces, gardens, beaches, and more than three miles of bridal trails. Many guests drove down the gracefully winding drive bordering the Old Naples to attend the party she gave purely for her own pleasure. Many more came to large gatherings planned for the benefit of various charities. It must have been a festive scene indeed, as hundreds of paper lanterns flickered fairy-like throughout the trees, private yachts rode at anchor offshore, and professional dancers performed on the front lawn overlooking the sound. Valeria Bonham told the story of one yacht captain who, intent on listening to one of the open-air concerts in progress, let his boat run aground, there to remain until high tide. Consequently, his guests were invited to come ashore in one of the small boats kept at the dock and proceeding to join in the festivities. The house and gardens were also used as the setting for several early motion pictures, among them David Wark Griffith's Orphans of the Storm, in 1922, which starred Lillian and Dorothy Gish. In 1952, Valeria Langloth Bonham died childless at the age of 70, and two years later, the life of Walhall also ended. Frederick Bonham sold the estate, which was then broken up into smaller lots. The main house was torn down. There are those who may remember such details as the 30-foot domed ceiling over the grand staircase that concealed pipes of an Aeolian uh, organ, or the bath in the master suite with its gold fixtures and wedgewood inlays in the tiled walls. Today, however, only partial remains of the mansion's balustrades and garden structures are to be found. 
Now that, my friends, is Walhall, one of the shoreline estates uh, once located in the Riverside section of, um, of Greenwich. This was featured in the Great Estate, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880 to 1930 book that was published by the Junior League of Greenwich, Connecticut. That book is available for borrowing from the Greenwich Library System. It is very richly illustrated. I urge you to, to find it. You may also be able to uh, purchase one on your uh, favorite online um, book vendor and uh, and all. You can learn more about uh, my good friends over at the Junior League of Greenwich and the extraordinary work that they have done and continue to do by going online to jlgreenwich.org. The Junior League of Greenwich is located at 231 East Putnam Avenue in the heart of the Putnam Hill National Historic District. You can also call them at area code 203-869-1979. That's area code 203-869-1979. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, super-friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. You are listening to the Greenwich in Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich in Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, my friends, while I am sipping my morning coffee and enjoying it with a great deal of relish here at Coffee for Good on the grounds of the Second Congregational Church in Greenwich, in the, well, actually, I'm outside the Solomon Mead House. That's the stone Italianate mansion at 48 Maple Avenue. Um, I invite you to come and to... um, uh, and to come, you can even join me for coffee if you wish. I uh, love to socialize and uh, and talk history. This is a great place to uh, to do it. It's a beautiful July morning uh, here in, um, in in Greenwich. And um, one of the things I thought that I would do uh, is to uh, to share with you from this absolutely beautiful location some uh, some excerpts from the book uh, Greenwich Before Two Thousand. Now this book 
was published as an updated revised edition of another favorite Greenwich history book of mine and that uh, favorite uh, or the other favorite I should say is, is before and after 1776 the comprehensive chronology of the town of Greenwich now I have to point out that Greenwich before 2000 it goes through the year 1999 it was adopted as a project by the Greenwich Historical Society years ago and that was made possible by the generous support and honor of a fine gentleman here in, um, in Greenwich by the name of Russell S. Reynolds Jr. Now, he is a descendant of the founders of the town of Greenwich, and Russell, for many, many years, has distinguished himself and his family for their numerous charitable requests that have done so much to advance the preservation of Greenwich's history uh, for many, many years. The book before Greenwich Before 2000 is available in the Greenwich uh, Library System. You can borrow it for free. Um, I believe it is also available at the Greenwich Historical Society's gift store. You probably could go online and find it uh, from your um, online uh, bookseller, your favorite one, that is. Now, because uh, it is July and we are counting down to Founders Day, which is um, on July 18th, um, I thought that maybe I would uh, share with you some of the excerpts uh, from uh, this book uh, from the 17th century. And so um, we're going to begin with um, 1869, or 1669, sorry, 70, and then go through 1676. All right, on March 19th of, um, of 1869 to 70, Jonathan Lockwood is to repair the fence which separates the planting fields from the common pasture land in Old Greenwich and is to make a great gate with iron hinges. On February 6th in 1670, the town meeting requests a committee to lay out 30 lots of four acres each on land near Horseneck Brook. On March 14 of that year, Daniel Patrick's son signed a deed relinquishing all claims to his father's land in exchange for a horse, saddle, bridle, and 50 pounds. William Grimes dies, leaving 32 acres of lamb, the present-day shore lands, to the town for, quote, enlarging of ye town of Greenwich, quote-unquote. The bequest was used for the support and maintenance of the minister. In 1672, Mr. Jones is called to Stamford to assist the Reverend John Bishop with his ministerial duties. There are... 27 proprietors, quote-unquote, or landowners in Greenwich who will each receive lots in the Horseneck Plantation. The size of each lot is to be determined by the taxable property of each recipient. So John Ferris is taxed the most at £157 and Walter Butler the least at £30. In March of that year, that would be 1672, the West Mayanus Neck, that would be Upper Riverside, plenty field is laid out. And on July 4th of that year, the Quakers, Gershom Lockwood, John Marshall, and Thomas Young, refuse to pay for the minister's support and are deprived of an interest in common or undistributed lands. In 1673, on January 22nd, under orders of New York, Governor Lovelace, a post writer, carries mail from New York through Greenwich to Boston, arriving February 5th. On July 10 of that year, Mr. Jones's Greenwich House is bought by the town for £27 to be used as a townhouse. And on March 8th of 1673, boundary lines between Greenwich and Stamford and Greenwich and Rye are set by the General Court. In 1675, April 27, the town meeting decides to complete the laying out of land, quote, between the Mayanus and Byram rivers as it lieth below the Westchester Path. Quote unquote. This is the land south of the post road from Byram to Mayanus. On May 10 of that year, the townhouse is enlarged for a minister's use, but no minister can be found. And in fall of 1675, stockades are built around the townhouse for protection from Indian raids. Ammunition is procured from Governor Andros in New York, and quote, all persons are to repair to townhouse in case of alarm sounded by drum. And in 1676, on January 9th, Greenwich enlists the help of the Reverend John Bishop of Stamford in seeking the services of Mr. Wiswell to supply the Greenwich pulpit, but to no avail. 
On February 13 of 1676, John Banks Sr. and Thomas Lyon are granted 360 acres at the end of Byram Neck and above the Westchester Path to replace their Indian grants. Banks is also granted Calf Islands. And finally, on October 23rd of 1676, the assessed value of land is figured as follows, and I quote, one-fourth of their improved land by tillage, mowing, and English pasture, to be listed 20 shillings per acre, the other three parts at 10 shillings per acre, and all other lands particularly appropriated by fence at one shilling per acre, unquote. All this comes from Greenwich Before 2000, published as an updated edition of the Greenwich History Book Before and After 1776, the comprehensive chronology of the town of Greenwich. You can find this uh, book in the Greenwich Library System for wiring purposes. Um, You may find it over the Greenwich Historical Society's gift store or your favorite online bookseller. You know, it's easy to see why the Greenwich Historical Society's Tavern Garden Markets are such a hit. In a class by itself, the Tavern Garden Markets feature a specially curated and alternating selection of locally grown and sourced products. Support local growers, producers, and artisans when you fill your basket and your home with the bounties of nature and unique handcrafted goods. Enjoy farm-to-table organic produce, fresh eggs, plants, and flowers. Savor the flavor of nutritiously prepared foods, fresh-baked breads, fruit pies, and donuts. Find the perfect gift among an array of vintage silver, jewelry, stationery, ceramics, and accessories. Mark your calendars, my friends, for Wednesday, July 13, and July 27, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Now, I want to let you in a little secret. Ready? Early birds are welcomed at 9.30, but you didn't hear that from me. Now, Tavern Garden Markets are held in the lobby and tavern gardens at the Greenwich Historical Society, 47 Strickland Road, Cascob. Sponsored by Yashmin Lloyds and Compass. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. Well, my friends, once again, it's that time. Prolific and gifted Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard was very influential in the town of Greenwich. He was a lawyer, writer, a gifted storyteller. He had a remarkable life, one that spanned the end of the 19th century and the first third of the 20th century in Greenwich, Connecticut. Writing under the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale, he wrote about things in Greenwich called Cracker Barrel Stuff by his own definition. His column, The Judge's Corner, was published in the Greenwich News. Now, one gentleman that we are very indebted to is Frank Nicholson. He collected Judge Hubbard's Greenwich News articles, publishing them in compendium form as Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 vintage newspaper columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. The one I have today is column number 118, and it was published on September 17, 1931. The headline is as follows. The Labor Question, Old Names of Localities in Greenwich, A New Regard for the Importance and Value of Antiques. So let's get on with it, shall we? Agriculture and fruit raising in New England hold their own, but no more. During the past 10 years, there has been a shortage of help. The native sons have had an ambition for white-collar jobs in the cities. But since 1929, there has been an abundance of help at reduced wages, and the white-collar aspirants are are at work at home. Laborers on the farms and orchards are getting $2.50 instead of $3.50 paid formally. Carpenters and painters in the cities are easily obtained at 75 cents an hour for eight hours. These are union men who take contracts for work based on that that figure. But the mill towns are in wretched condition, owing not so much to the General Depression, but to the National Federation of Labor. The statistics show that in such cities as Lowell, Lawrence, Fall River, Lynn, Brockton, 
Haverhill, and Manchester since 1920, there has been a slump in manufacturing operations. And in many, if not all of these cities, there has been an equal loss of population. For instance, Haverhill's population in 1920 was 53,000. In 1930, 48,000. Lowell has practically ceased to be a cotton textile center. Eight enormous mills, six and seven stories high, covering several blocks with smokeless chimneys are idle. Mill owners have been driven away by labor troubles. They have gone south, anticipating the non-interference of the Federation. And yet these men, who are large employers of labor, have never been opposed to local unions. The trouble has been that the great national organization, of which Gumpers was the head, located somewhere in the West, dominates the local unions. Hard and fast rules are made in such unions. Local conditions vary all over the United States. A very liberal wage in one locality is a small wage in another. To manage such an unwieldy organization as the Federation requires brains, experience, and executive ability. Such a combination of qualities is scarcely to be found among those whose only training has been in the mechanics. Such thoughts as these are expressed by employers of labor, as well as by the employed themselves. One can hear them in the parks, the resting places of the unemployed, or in the country stores, opposed to the Federation of Labor and bound hand and foot by the rigid orders of a great non-resident organization. Everyone carries the little pocket timetable issued by the Greenwich Cab Company. In its schedule of fares, quote-unquote, which very comprehensively covers the town, it is refreshing to see that old names of localities are used. Quote, the White Bridge in Bruce Park, unquote, means the very Black Iron Bridge on the New Haven Railroad. In 1848, it was a white-covered bridge, and it was not displaced by the present bridge until 1880. Everyone knew it as the White Bridge, and there was not another like it along the line between New York and New Haven. The old White Bridge no longer exists, but it is well to preserve the name. It lives in history, and among the older patrons of the railroad, it carries many happy memories. Some said, many happy, and those days before Greenwich had assumed its importance as a city hub, suburb. The card also spells correctly Deerfield Drive. Many suppose when it is spelled Deerfield Drive, that's with two E's, that the name was suggested by those solemn-eyed, smooth-coated beauties that once were at home on the farm across which the drive runs. But the first half of the word is not the noun, but an adjective. And the name of that great 300-acre farm of Richard Mead, the father of Colonel Thomas A. Mead, was bestowed more than a century ago, when the undulating hills covering with waving grain and timothy framed on the west by the beautiful hemlock woods were termed deer fields that spell d-e-a-r and then space f-e-f-i-e-l-d-s moving forward the people of southern new hampshire and perhaps all of new england have passed that idiotic period when iron dogs on the front lawn and stately cupolas on the roof were all the fashion. When within the house, canopied beds were discarded for those whose massive black walnut heads touched the ceiling, and ancient mahogany spindle leg tables were cast aside for the marble top. Some of these precious antiques of the colonial period have stayed in the attic, but many of them were given away or sold to peddlers as second-hand stuff, for which the new, shiny, and up-to-date pieces were deemed preferable. That much of such antique furniture still remains in apparent in many ways. John Mitchell's auctions all over New England and in New York, Rhode Island, and Pennsylvania are proof of the fact, and since the cupolas have been transformed into henhouses and the iron dogs have gone to the melting pot, 
it is quite evident that the knowledge of the antique has engendered a love for those pieces that an earlier generation held in little regard. Books on the subject by such authorities as Luke Vincent Lockwood and Esther Shackleton, all published within the past 30 years, have had a remarkable influence in guiding the New England people to, the, to a realizing sense of the importance and value of such pieces as were discarded by their parents. Recently, we were attracted by the notice of a pageant devoted entirely to the subject of the antique in furniture, dress, and customs. It is well that the latter two have been discarded. Modern dress and our manner of living are a great improvement over those of the past, but the wealth of colonial furniture that has shown in the pageant was a marvel of beauty and so appropriate in those old homesteads beneath the graceful elms from which they had been borrowed. And that, my friend, is by Frank, is by, uh, sorry, our good friend, Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard, um, in his book, uh, and that would be Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. You will find those in the Greenwich Library system, and I do recommend them. There's some great stories in there, and I think that you'll enjoy it. Thank you for listening. My friends, I'm sure you'll agree that Music on the Great Lawn on Thursdays is a hit. Presented by the First Bank of Greenwich and supported by Waterstone on High Ridge, Music on the Great Lawn is located weekly in the heart of the Greenwich Historical Society's Bush Holly House Campus at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob. Trust me, friends, if you haven't noticed it already, summer is sizzling. Pack your picnic and enjoy an evening of live music in our historic gardens. Mark your calendars this month for Thursday, July 14, when King's Highway is set to perform. On Thursday, July 28th, get ready for suburban chaos. Space is limited. Advanced registration is recommended. Members, $10. Non-members, $20. Hey, become a member of the Greenwich Historical Society and receive special rates. Don't put it off any further. The Great Lawn opens at 5.30 p.m. The concert starts at 6.30 p.m. and goes until 8 p.m. My friends, you can learn more at GreenwichHistory.org or call area code 203-869-6899. All right, my friends, I got to tell you that there are some things that you find in history that defy description. Or, or categorization by um, by any means, or at least. So um, one of the things that, well, I want to mention this because of what I'm about to share with you. Now, some of you may remember back in mid-April of this year, year 2022, um, a story in the Greenwich Free Press, and maybe it was uh, published elsewhere, about the Fuhrer in Old Greenwich that was centered on an exterior display outside the offices of Abigail Fox Designs and the violation for it that was issued. It was a floral design. It looked really beautiful. Somebody took offense, and then people took offense of the offense, if you catch my drift. All right, so <laughs> I want you to imagine for yourself something that happened uh, almost 100 years ago in December uh, 1922. This is something that, like I said, it defies description, and I'm going to share it with you. Let me see if I can bring this up. Here it is. Yes. Its title of this story is A Deer Sextet. Six fine buck deers attract Greenwich Avenue attention. And this was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on December 8th, 1922. So literally almost 100 years ago. And the story goes as follows. Hope you're sitting down for this. All right. Six large buck deer hanging in front of Finch's Pharmacy attracted considerable attention the last of the week. They were bagged by C.A. Spatz of Greenwich, Dr. Henry Bauman, Dr. O.N. Helmer, and Carlton Pratt of New York, who, with other members of a hunt club, spend many enjoyable hours at their camp in Laurel, Canada. Each of the bucks weighed about 155 pounds. There were, there were eight in all killed, six of them being shipped here. Last Saturday, they were taken to a local meat market where they were dressed 
uh, and cut up for distribution among the friends of Mr. Spatz and the other members of the club in New York and Greenwich. The camp is located about 68 miles from Montreal, Canada. It is a fine uh, a, a hunting country as can be found anywhere. The club is anxious to secure four additional members, and undoubtedly there are young men in Greenwich who would be glad to join and enjoy the privileges and facilities afforded at the camp. There is other game, including bears, in that locality, and many fine specimens have been captured within eight miles of the camp. So picture this. This is prompted by the fact that, and I quote now, six large buck deer hanging in front of Finch's Pharmacy, again, this is on Greenwich Avenue, uh, attracted considerable attention the last of the week. Could you imagine that happening today? Well, what can, can we say except let's hope it never happens. All right. <laughs> of course, we are counting down to Founders Day, which will be on July 18th, which comes next week. Uh, unfortunately, the time that we have on today's show, we can't go into every single instance of how uh, Founders Day was celebrated and commemorated in um, in Greenwich history. Uh, so I'm just going to um, pick out a few things. I will tell you that there were parades, there were balls, there were um, all sorts of uh, celebrations. Um, I, of course, some of you who are um, longtime residents here uh, may remember the uh, 350th um, anniversary of the founding of, Gran of the town of Greenwich. I was um, a very big part of that. I was on the board of the Greenwich Historical Society um, at the time. That was back in uh, 1990. And I have to tell you that, my goodness, that was probably one of the busiest years of my life and certainly uh, those of many of us who were very active um, at the uh, Greenwich Historical Society uh, back in, um, in 1990. It was an extraordinary time that still brings back uh, fond memories and uh, uh, and we did a lot of good uh, back in the day, and there, there's still the, the work continues, <laughs> as we like to say. So I'm just going to, for our purposes here, share a, a few things. Um, now, back um, in um, 1966, um, there was a short, uh, a small story that appeared in the Greenwich Time. Far off in England, town fly flag flies day. Few note here, and it says today is the 326th. Founders Day in Greenwich, a fact of which some residents may not be aware. It is, however, being observed 3,000 miles um, away where the town flag is waving above the Civic Center in Greenwich, England. News of the British observance was received by the Office of the Selectmen in a cablegram from R.T. Soames, Mayor of Greenwich, England. It was on July 18, 1640, that a group of hardy settlers purchased a portion of what is now Greenwich Point from Indians who lived in the area. So um, that year, uh, and, and I'm sure others, it was uh, being uh, celebrated uh, back um, in, um, in New England, or, or uh, Old England, sorry about that. Let's see what else it is that, um, that I can find here. All right, let's see. Okay, oh no, that's for another show. We're going to talk about parking, <laughs> but not today. Not today at all. Oh, here we are. 336th year settlement celebrated. And uh, this, of course, uh, it dates from uh, 1976. And let me just read this to you. Greenwich is a town which endeavors to preserve and maintain those landmarks which contribute so materially to its beauty to guard its justly admired rural atmosphere. That is part of the anniversary message from First Selectman Rupert Vernon. Many of our old-timers here in Greenwich remember him. I certainly do. will deliver Sunday as the town marks its 336th birthday. As part of the message, he will deliver at the First Congregational Church in Old Greenwich as the town marks Founders Day at a special service. Greenwich came into being on July 18, 1640, when a handful of intrepid English settlers bought what is now Greenwich Point from a few Indians for some coats. Thus, it will it is that the town's birthday will be marked in the old Greenwich Church just two weeks after the nation marked its bicentennial celebration. In his talk Sunday, Mr. Vernon, commenting on the town's unique character, will state that, quote, through the process of law, it follows a policy which seeks to perpetuate the existing character of its business and residential areas and, at the same time, recognizing the demands of intelligent and reasonable progress. However, it goes on, each year at midsummer, the town of Greenwich pauses to pay special tribute to the pioneer spirit and the energy of its original English settlers. 
Acting under the authority of the colony of New Haven on July 181640, just 336 years ago, they signed a deed of purchase with the Indians for land between the Assamuck and Potomac Creeks, what is now Greenwich Point, Mr. Vernon's proclamation states. Quote, the hardy band was headed by Elizabeth Feek, niece of Governor John Winthrop of Massachusetts, her husband Robert Feek, Captain J- Daniel Patrick, and Jeffrey Ferris, names to conjure with an unlengthy annals of our town. In accordance with a resolution from the Greenwich Historical Society submitted by the Board of Selectmen and approved on January 12, 1948 by the representative town meeting, July 18th was proclaimed as Founders Day. Quote, Therefore, I, Rupert Vernon, first selectman of the town of Greenwich, do hereby proclaim Sunday, July 18th, as Founders Day and, quote, call upon citizens of Greenwich to commemorate the founding of this town with appropriate exercises at home, church, and places of public assembly. This is a day of joyful remembrance. It should be celebrated with good cheer and the determination to return for the mercies of our lot, full measure of zealous effort to perpetuate a progressive community of wise, just, and tolerant men under God's providence. All right, well, on July 5th, 1907, the people of Greenwich opened up their papers and they read about a young man named John H. Tyson. He was arrested for overspeeding on Greenwich Avenue. Well, what's new about that? Well, you're going to find out. He was fined $50 in costs. Um, And John H. Tyson, he was a Riverside resident, was fined $50 in costs by Judge Barnes for speeding on Greenwich Avenue on Sunday afternoon. The complaint was made by Sergeant Andy Talbot, but the sergeant was appointed guardian uh, for Mr. Tyson as the latter is a minor and he did not testify. There were several people, however, to testify that Mr. Tyson and Warren G. Noble were traveling down Greenwich Avenue, apparently racing at a rate of 30 or 40 miles an hour. Could you try? imagine trying to do that today? No, don't do that. <laughs> Please don't. Mr. Tyson explained the matter by saying that there was a crack in the frame of his machine. He's referring to his car. Um, and that he had sent for Mr. Noble, who was a manager of the Mathewson Automobile Company, to look at it. Mr. Noble said that it was impossible to tell whether the defect was a crack or a flaw, and that the only way to find out was to try the machine, meaning car, at a rapid rate over all sorts of ground. Mr. Noble therefore started and shouting, quote, come ahead and follow me, unquote, made his way toward Greenwich, The court was not apparently greatly impressed by this story. I wonder why. It appears (laughs) that after the autoists, those are drivers, passed through the borough, the borough of Greenwich, they made their way to the Indian Harbor Yacht Club. As Sergeant Talbot has no authority to make arrests outside the borough, Sheriff Rich drove down to the clubhouse taking the sergeant with him. They were told that the autoists had gone away on Mr. Tyson's yacht, I don't know how too many miners who have yachts, but who knows. The police immediately sent word to Mr. Tyson's house that he must appear at court Monday morning without fail. And lo and behold, he did. All right. So that's kind of nice. So we've got that crime out of the way. We had something else that happened. This is in 1898. I'm not going to go through the whole thing because um, it's, well, it's it's rather involving and you're going to find out why. Um, let's see, handsome homes of Mr. John H. Boswell, Dr. Mr. George P. Sheldon, and Mr. George Rowland of the Field Point of Field Point Road, that would be in Belhaven, were broken into Thursday evening, and many valuables, mostly silver, were stolen. By the way, this happened on uh, July 9, 1898. So literally, um, you know, the same month and all. Mr. Sheldon was its heaviest loser, as much of his silverware was taken. The handsome cups which George Sheldon Jr. had won in the tennis tournaments last year and the year previous were also taken. These prizes were all marked George P. Sheldon, quote-unquote. In each house, entrance was gained by prying open a window. What time the robbery was committed, no one knows. Mr. Boswell lost one half-dozen large plated forks, one half-dozen small plated forks, 
one plated tray with open border and one plated silver lampshade, two napkin rings, solid silver, one marked Sally, then that's spelled S-A-L-L-I-E, and the other one marked S-M-B, that's in initials. The tray and the lampshade were found yesterday morning in a field near the house. Mr. Rowland lost one double inkstand, one silver cup, plain silver, silver pen holder, a gold thimble, seven silver teaspoons. You know, I'm not going to read you the whole inventory, but it goes on and on and on. These are very detailed things, you know, even with examples of stenciling and things like that uh, that were uh, on. We can say this, and I will conclude, is that Offer Fitzroy was at work on the case and hopes to gain a clue as to who the thieves were. Uh, I have no idea whether these people were, were caught or whether the items were returned. But remember, just like we say with your cars on Greenwich Avenue, take the keys with you uh, and, of course, lock your windows and, uh, and everything else to keep the, uh, the thieves away. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to the 15th of July 2022 special Founders Day episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by me. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. You and your Greenwich stories are a part of our history, and we are very, very glad to have you. Oh, by the way, before I forget what's going on this coming weekend, Greenwich Sidewalk Sales. My friends over at the uh, Greenwich Chamber of Commerce and the people behind the uh, Greenwich uh, Sidewalk Sales, I know it's going to be hot and I know it's going to be <laughs> very, very dry outside, but please make it a point of getting over to Greenwich Avenue and to participating stores and shops everywhere uh, and enjoy some of the best bargains that you're going to find at the Greenwich Sidewalk Sales. And tell, tell everybody that I say hi, would you please? <laughs> all right. Now, the Greenwich Town for All Season show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Now, my friends, you can always call me or contact me anytime at Greenwich at Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Learn about the show and listen to past shows as many times as you want, as often as you want. There is no paywall or anything like that by going to Greenwich, a town for all seasons.blogspot.com. I post the show, by the way, um, uh, each week on Facebook and, uh, and elsewhere on uh, social media. Uh, I invite you to also look for uh, certain groups uh, that exist on Facebook uh, about the history of the town, such as you know you're from Greenwich If, Images of Greenwich, Connecticut, Greenwich Connections, Byram Neighborhood Association, the Friends of Byram Park, and our friends over in uh, in New York, the Port Chester, New York Historical Archive, and many more. Stay tuned, because next week, Friday, the 22nd of July, 2022, is when our next show is going to be posted and and online and so on and so forth. So anyway, please go out. Enjoy your weekend. Don't forget those Greenwich sidewalk sales and all of the events that are going on at the Greenwich Historical Society and quite frankly, everywhere else in town. There's always something to see and do uh, here in modern day Greenwich, Connecticut. With that said, everybody, bye-bye now. Have a great week ahead. Thank you.